0: I'll never forget. It was the start of my second semester at the University of Mayor Hardin-Baylor of my freshman year. And something happened to me that I'd never experienced in my life before. I showed up to the gym in January and it was completely full. The gym on campus was never full. I'm, I'm a little bit like a bird dog in that if you don't exercise me every day, I start tearing stuff up and I go a little crazy. So I was used to going to the gym just about every day, every other day, and I'd show up and there were a few regular people that I'd run into that were there, but for the most part, it was pretty much empty. Until the beginning of the second semester, when I came back, January, and every single piece of equipment was being used. There was not a dumbbell to be had, or an, or a, an elliptical machine, or a treadmill that I could get on, because every single piece of equipment was being used. And I, I couldn't figure it out. My first thought was, well, maybe everybody made some New Year's resolutions, and they're, they're actually sticking to them uh, here in the third, fourth week of January. But as I started talking with people, you know, saying, hey, uh, um, you know, I hadn't seen you in here at all last semester. Why Why are you coming now? Like, why are you using my equipment? Uh, no, why are you here now? Like, and, and the response, almost every single person was, well, you know, the weather's going to start getting warm soon, and uh, someone may invite me to go out to the lake, and I don't want to be embarrassed when I when I have to put my swimsuit on, right? It was like, it's swimsuit season is coming. And nobody knew exactly when that first warm day was going to come, but everybody wanted to be prepared. So all the guys were over there in front of the mirrors doing curls and trying to pump up their pecs. and, And all the girls are over on the elliptical machines, and they're doing the treadmill, because everybody wanted to be prepared for that first warm spring day when we would go out to the lake and we'd swim right and And they had this incredible motivation. they didn 't know when or when or where or exactly how soon that first warm spring day was going to come, but they wanted to be prepared for whenever it came. So they were doing everything they could to get themselves in shape and to stay in shape. So they had this incredible motivation, and this morning we 're going to see as we continue our series in first peter we 're going to see our motivation for being the everyday church. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, and we're going to see, as we've talked about, Peter reminds us that we're, we're strangers and aliens, that we're called to live in the margins of society. And we saw that he calls us to an everyday community as the everyday church and to everyday holiness as we live as everyday missionaries. And in this chapter, chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, he's going to lay out our motivation for that. He's going to say, hey, here are all the reasons for you to live this way, to live as strangers and aliens, to live in a community together, to live as everyday missionaries. And he starts in verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 4. He says this, now the end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and disciplined for prayer. Okay, so he says, the end of all things is near. Now, what he's talking about there is not the end of the Mayan calendar or some Armageddon, some, some uh, crazy, you know, we, we see those movies, the end times where there's a meteor headed towards earth. No, he's not talking about some major catastrophic event. He's talking about the return of Jesus Christ. He says, this is your motivation. This is your hope that you have as believers in Jesus Christ, your everyday hope is Christ's return. Because when Christ returns, our salvation will be fully realized. Our salvation will be fully realized and will be fully complete. And so he says, this is what you have to look forward to. The moment, the very thing that you're trusting in now, seeing that come to full fruition. And he says, he says it's drawing near He says, the end of all things is near. Now, we read this, and and we realize that when Peter's writing this, it's been about 30 years since Jesus has died on the cross and risen from the dead. And he's ascended into heaven. And Jesus told him, I'm coming back. And it's been 30 years. So I'm sure people who are reading this letter from Peter for the very first time, they're thinking, hey, that was 30 years ago. He said he's coming back, and he hasn't come back yet. For us, it's over 2,000 years how can you say the end of all things is near when it's been 2,000 years? But really, when we look closely at it, what he's saying is that the end end of all things is nearing, right? Is a better translation, some translations say that it draws near, that it's coming to a close. And I like to think of it this way, that every day, we are closer to the return of Jesus Christ than we've ever been before, right? That's that's what Peter's saying. He's saying, look, Jesus is coming back, and we're closer now than we've ever been before. And because we're getting closer and closer and closer, it, it ought to impact the way that we live. Because we know that we're going to stand before Jesus. He says, the end of all things is near. And he gives them, gives them a couple things to think through. He says, first, be serious and Be disciplined. Now, there's a tendency when we read about the end of all things or the end times, there's a tendency for us to want to know the who, what, when, where, why, and how of how it's all going to play out. And we want to know all the details. But I love that Peter doesn't really give any detail other than it's, it's coming. He says, it's coming. Be ready. It's coming. That's all he says. But he gives them two, two things. He says, be serious and be disciplined. He uses two words that describe mental alertness. The first one, be serious, describe someone who's calm, they're stable, they're vigorous in their thinking, they're thinking about the important things. And then the second word that he uses there, be disciplined. Uh, It it means, some say be sober-minded. Some translations say be sober-minded. So this word relates to drunkenness. It's kind of the opposite of being drunk. And what he's saying there is, is, listen, be rational in your thinking. Be rational in your thinking. Don't be fooled Two things, don't be fooled into thinking that he's not coming back. Be rational. He's promised that he will come back. So don't be fooled. Don't believe those people that say, well, it's been 30 years, it's been 2,000 years. If he was going to come back, he would have come back by now. Don't be fooled into thinking that. And second, don't fall into the trap of, of trying to figure out the who, what, when, where, why, and how. Right? Jesus himself says that it's not for you to know the times or the seasons The son of man doesn't even know. Only the father knows. And there are people who spend their entire lives work coming up with charts and graphs and writing books on what the end times is gonna look like and they they spend their entire lives doing that. And it's a waste because every single time someone has said he's coming back this day, it's never happened. And it's never going to happen that way. And so Peter is saying, look, you've gotta be sober-minded. You gotta have be rational in your thinking. Don't worry about trying to figure it out. What I want you to know is that we're getting closer. We're getting closer, and it could happen at any time. Just like when I was in college, that first warm spring day could have come at any moment. It's Texas. We could have our first warm spring day in January, and everybody's headed out to the lake, or it could come in May. You never know, right? But we want to be prepared. We want to be prepared because we know it's coming. We know it's coming soon. And so he says, look, it's getting closer. It could happen any time. Be sober-minded. Be clear in your thinking. So how do we do this? How do we do this? He gives us the answer in the very next word. Be serious and disciplined for what? What does it say? Be serious and disciplined for prayer. Be serious and disciplined for prayer. Christ's return is our incentive. It's our motivation that keeps us disciplined and prayerful in our behavior. And what Peter is saying there is, look, you need to be in communication with God about your actions, about your thinking, making sure that your thinking is in line, that you're praying through your own lifestyle, your own choices that you're making, but also that you'd be praying through the people around you, that God would give you strength, he would give you wisdom to minister to the people around you, and that he would give you the ministry of the word to reach other people for Jesus Christ. And so our living, if our thinking is right, if our praying is right, then our living will be right as well. And he jumps into that in the very next verse. Verse 8, he says this, above all things, maintain an intense what? Maintain an intense love for who? Each other. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 10, he goes on and says, uh, verse 9, he says, be hospitable to one another without complaining. So there's a couple things here that he talks about. First is that our hope The hope of Christ's return is demonstrated as a reality in us when we love one another. He says, because the end of all things is coming, you should be disciplined, you should be praying, but that's going to show itself in the way that you love one another. So he gives them the command to love each other intensely. Um, The word that's used there for intense, some translations say deeply loving one another. It's a word that's used to describe the taut muscles of an athlete as he's straining and striving towards the finish line. Right? It's this straining and striving that he calls us towards. Now, I've run a couple marathons in my life, and I've run probably countless 5Ks uh, and a a few half marathons. And I can tell you that... um, Every single race that I've ever run, when I've been running in that marathon, when I see that finish line, it doesn't matter if it's 3.1 miles in a 5K or 26.2 in the marathon. As soon as I see that finish line, I start to sprint. With whatever is left in me, I just start sprinting and straining. This is a picture of me finishing out the 2008 uh, White Rock Marathon in Dallas. And man, I was tired. I hadn't finished all my training. I was worn out at the end. But I saw that finish line, and I just started sprinting and straining. And at the very end, I could just feel that my muscles were still tense and tight, and I could barely walk because my calves were so full of blood. And I was just worn out. And Peter says, as you see the end of all things is near, as you strive to live and love one another, says it should be this way. It would be so intense that you would strain to love one another, that your straining would be to the point of self-sacrifice. He uses the word agape here when he says to love one another. And agape is the type of love that is self-sacrificing. How is it that love is self-sacrificing? It means putting the needs of others ahead of our own. It means at times forgiving them. I'll never forget before the day the actual day that Amanda and I got married. I was back in the groom's quarters, which was the choir room at First Baptist Salado. And we're back there, we're preparing, and my mom and dad came back to pray with me, giving me their last minute words of wisdom. And uh, my mom said, and I've heard her say it many times since then, she says, remember, you won't always like each other, but you will always love each other. You won't always like each other, but you won't always love each other. Now, if you're married or you have brothers and sisters, you know that that's true, right? There are times when you just look at each other, you're like, you know what, I need a break, I need, I need to go to my room, you need to go to your room, and I just don't like you right now, but I still love you, we're going to work through this, but for now we need to separate, we need to give each other some space, but I still love you. Sometimes that's hard for us as believers, because we, want, we, we think that love means an emotional love, and there is an aspect of that, but it's so much more than that. I had a roommate in college named John that we roomed together for one semester because we could not get along. Like, for whatever reason, we just couldn't get along as roommates. But as soon as we separated that very next semester, we became best friends. He became my hunting partner. That, that He was taking me out. We were going duck hunting before class almost every morning and during duck season. I was spending every afternoon in his apartment. We were eating together. We were hanging out all the time. For whatever reason, when we lived together, we couldn't get along. But as soon as there was that little bit of separation, we began to appreciate one another in a different way. And, and we pretty much probably should have just moved into the same apartment together because we spent every minute of every day together just hanging out, being friends. Paul and Barnabas, the same thing. They had a disagreement that came up and, and they split ways because they just couldn't agree, but they come back together. And we see later that Paul is, is admiring Barnabas and he's promoting Barnabas as his co-worker in Christ. And so sometimes for us, we have that disagreement and what needs to take place is not just the intense love, but the forgiving love. And he shows this in that very next section where he quotes from Proverbs ten twelve. He says, love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. Now when I first read this when I was younger, I thought that it meant that God's love covers my sin so that when I put my trust in Jesus Christ, I'm covered by God's love and he no longer sees my sin. And that idea is 100% biblically accurate, but that's not exactly what this verse is referring to. It's kind of similar in the way that that our love for each other Covers over each other's sins, so that when we see each other, we don't see each other's weaknesses, we don't see each other's uh, faults or sins that may have been committed against us. That we're able to let those things go. We're able to let those things go and to love one another. It's the type of love that is talked about in First Corinthians chapter thirteen. It's the type of love that's talked about when Jesus is is talking about how our our ability to forgive others demonstrates the reality that we have been forgiven. It's that kind of love that he is calling us to here. So we have this agape, self-sacrificing love. And I want to I challenge you. Um, we're into November. Today's November 1. And I want to ask you this question. Is there someone in your life that you need to extend loving forgiveness to? Is there someone in your life that that maybe you're harboring bitterness against? Maybe you're just being unforgiving. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers a multitude of sins. What we see there is that when you're forgiving someone, you're covering their sins. If you're not forgiving, you're expressing hatred. And I want to challenge you in this, to start praying that God would work in your heart, that God would change your heart, towards whoever it is that, that you need to seek forgiveness from or extend forgiveness to, that you be would be able to wake up on Thanksgiving Day completely at peace, knowing that there, there is no one that you need to extend forgiveness to because you've extended forgiveness to them. And you could be truly thankful for the forgiveness that God has extended to you. And you would demonstrate that through your forgiveness towards others. That's just just my little challenge to us that we would honestly be able to say that there there is no one that I need to forgive because I've already forgiven them. Whether that's a conversation that needs to take place or something that just needs to take place inside of you. Agape love, self-sacrificing love. The second kind of love, that he describes, it's not only an intense and forgiving love, he goes on in the second half of that verse, or the verse 9, and he explains a practical way to love. He says, be hospitable to one another without complaining. Now, the word there for hospitable is made up of two Greek words, phileo and xenos. Xenos means stranger. Phileo means brotherly love. And so he's saying, look, I want you to love in a very practical way the people that may be strangers but the people of the church, that you, would, that you would extend hospitality, welcome them into your home. And I love the second part of that. Without grumbling, without complaining, that you would freely open your home. Now let's remember what's going on at the time that Peter is writing this. That there's beginning to be a little bit of persecution towards the Christians, And there are Christians who are being kicked out of their houses. They're losing their businesses. Their businesses are being shut down and they have nowhere to go because at this time they had inns, um, but the inns were kind of a place of darkness. It was where a lot of unsavory things took place. And so for a Christian to go to an inn and kind of be associated with that wasn't really an option, plus they were expensive. And so if you have no house, you have no job, how are you going to afford to pay for the inn? And so Peter's saying, look, bring each other into your homes. Invite those people who are without a place to go or without a meal, invite them into your home. Welcome them without grumbling, without complaining. Bring them into your home. Show them, practically show them your love. Show them your love. Do this without grumbling or complaining. It's a practical way to show love. And as I think about this, I think about, how, how am I doing it practically showing love towards other believers? Because there's something that happens when you welcome another believer into your home. First of all, thinking about the persecution that they were facing, this was a time to encourage one another. This was a time to just build each other up and say, you know what, I love you, I want to encourage you, and I want to build you up. And uh, also, it's, it's a way to just meet some real needs and to demonstrate to the world around us, the type of love that Christ gives us when we do it without complaining or arguing. So we have, we have this intense forgiving love that stems out of our knowledge that Jesus is coming again. And then we see this thing we see here that, um, that our love is demonstrated when we serve others with our gifts. Look with me at verse 10 and 11 based on on the gift each one has received use it to serve others as good managers of the varied grace of god if anyone speaks it should be as one who speaks god's words if anyone serves it should be from the strength god pres- provides so that you may be glorified through jesus christ in everything to him belong the glory and the power forever and ever Amen. So he's getting more and more into the practical. As he's talked about love, he's getting more into the practical. I don't think it's by mistake that elsewhere in Scripture, hospitality is listed as one of the spiritual gifts. And he makes this jump from a practical way to show love to discussion of spiritual gifts. Now, he doesn't list the spiritual gifts there. You have to look other places in Scripture um, to find that. But here's what we can take away from that. He says, based on the gifts, each one has received. He says that each and every one of us as believers in Jesus Christ has received a spiritual gift. And those gifts are to be used to serve other believers. It's to serve the body of Christ. So here's what we can take away from this. Very practically, the reality is that every believer is called to be a full-time gifted minister of God. That is reality that you as a believer in Jesus Christ are called and gifted as a full-time minister of God. Here at River Rock Bible Church, we often say the pastors are the equippers and the members are the ministers. And here's what we mean by that. When you're in the hospital, the last person that should walk through your door should be one of the pastors. The first person to walk through the door should be someone from your small group someone that you're in community with because they have been equipped to do the ministry. Yes, hopefully you will get a visit from one of the pastors. I'm not saying that we won't come visit, but what I'm saying is that it's our hope that by the time we hear about it, that the entire church, your your small group would have been there, others would have come around you, that there are care calendars already set up, that you're using your gifts to serve one another because there's, there's only so much that, the pastors and elders can do. But if we accept the responsibility of, of the fact that we are ministers of Jesus Christ, and that when there's a need, that I would go meet it. Oftentimes, people come to us and say, hey, there's, there's this need. So-and-so needs this. And we just kind of look at them and say, great, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? You've been called. You've been equipped. Do you have the ability to meet that need? And if the answer is, you know what, I I can't meet this need on my own. I need a little bit of help. We are more than happy to, hey, let's get some people together and meet this need. But it's the idea that we are all called and gifted ministers of God, that the ministry, the work of ministry doesn't belong to a select few. It belongs to each and every one of us. He goes on and he says that we are to use our gifts as good managers of the varied grace of God. That word good managers refers to the household managers of the day that would be entrusted with very important tasks, very important things. They might even be entrusted with the bank account of the master. And what he's saying is that as God's servants, as his servants, we've been entrusted with his gifts by his grace, we're entrusted with gifts. And Second Corinthians tells us that someday we will stand before Christ, and we will give an account for the way that we have lived as believers. And we'll have to answer for how we manage things like our money, which is why we're offering FPU coming up in January. We'll have to answer for the way that we stewarded, the way that we managed our spiritual gifts. Did we use them, or did we just show up and sit in a, in a row on Sunday morning? Or did we use our gifts to serve the other believers that were there? And we'll also have to give an account for the way that we've managed the gospel. The way that we've managed the gospel. Have we been sharing the good news? But as we look at gifts, as we think about using our giftedness, how are you managing your gifts? Are you managing them in a way that when you stand before Christ and he's looking over your life, and he gets to the section where he's looking at your spiritual gifts, and how you've managed them, that he would say, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have served my people well. You have used the gift that I blessed you with very well. We're coming up on one of the most exciting seasons of the year for me, and that is hunting season. In fact, on this side of I 35, the west side of I 35, um, hunting season. Waterfowl season has already begun. Uh, Goose season opened yesterday. Um, There's not many goose down here yet. We haven't had enough big cold fronts, but I love waterfowl hunting. I love ducks, geese, deer. Uh, Anything that I can put on my table in front of my family and we can enjoy it together, man, it just gets me excited. But one of my absolute favorite things about goose hunting, it's not the waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning and setting out decoys and digging a shallow grave for me to lie in, although that's kind of fun, playing in the dirt. But my absolute favorite thing is as the sun starts to come up and you start to hear the geese off in the distance and they start moving towards the fields, I just love to watch them. I love to watch them fly in this V. In fact, most of the time around here, you see them, they're about a mile up and you'll notice them flying in this V shape. And it's for a very specific reason that they fly in this shape. Because the the goose that's in the front, as he flaps his wings, It provides an uplift of air for the geese behind him. And so as you go further and further back, this one in the back is experiencing the full benefits of that uplift of all the other geese. And what they do is they take turns, they rotate positions so that the one who's leading isn't always in the front, that he gets to move to the back and he gets to rest and he's uplifting the other geese. And flying in this formation, geese can fly up to 1,500 miles per day. 1,500 miles per day. That's pretty far. I don't even like to drive that far in one day. And they can fly that far in one day. It's something, they're able to accomplish something together that they could never do on their own. In the same way, when we use our spiritual gifts, we provide an uplift to the other believers around us. And together, as we all participate and we all use our spiritual gifts, we're able to accomplish something that would be impossible to accomplish on our own. We're able to go further and faster with the gospel than we can as individual believers. That's why he calls us to use our gifts. But he he says to use them in a very specific way. He says, the second half of verse 11, he says, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever, amen. He's coming to this point and he's pointing us back to Jesus Christ. He's reminding us that Remember, we started with the end of all things is near. And I I went through the the reality that because the end of all things is near, it ought to change the way that we think, the way that we pray. And that demonstrates itself through love. And that love comes as we share our spiritual gifts with each other. He says, now I'm bringing you back to the reason, to the hope of Jesus Christ's return. That your gifts would be used in a way that it would point others to. Jesus Christ, and it would prepare others for his return. That the way you use your gifts would build up other believers and prepare them to stand before Christ. That it, would, that it would encourage non-believers, those who have yet to put their trust in Christ, that they would see and that they would be able to stand before him and say, I heard about Jesus Christ because of this person, because of this body working together. So as we think about our everyday hope, we want our everyday hope to be demonstrated through our love. Our love is seen through our service, using our spiritual gifts towards one another, and we we serve in a way that points other people to and prepares other people for the return of Jesus Christ. That is our everyday hope, the day that our salvation is fully realized. As we close this morning, we're going to go into our time of take two. And I just want to encourage you as we move into this time, you'll notice in your bulletin there's a little spot that says, um, you know, this is what God is saying to me, and then here's what I'm going to do because of what God is saying to me. And so I want to encourage you to think through, how is your thinking? Are you keeping the return of Christ at the forefront of your mind, allowing it to affect the way that you live, the way that you Uh, make your choices? Are you loving others in a way that demonstrates the reality that Christ is coming again? Are you using your gifts in a way that brings glory to God and points other people toward his son, Jesus Christ? Maybe for you, something that stuck out to you was that need to extend loving forgiveness to someone, and you want to write their name down. You want to write down a plan of action. I'm going to pray for them or I'm just going to pray and ask God to change my heart, or I'm going to make that difficult phone call. Whatever it is, I don't know what God is saying to you this morning, but I want to encourage you to take some time in prayer, listen to what God is saying, and then write down something that he is calling you to do because of what he's saying to you this morning. Let's take two.